The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Uh, well, uh, last week, if you've been with us this summer, last week we took a little bit of a breather from the, the series we've been in. We had a, what we call Ascending Sunday, where we, we go out in the community and we serve. And so uh, we did that last week, and so we, we took a break from the series, but we're back in it now. And, and the series we've been in this summer is called Frequently Asked Questions. Uh, and the idea behind this was uh, about a month ago or so, I asked y'all to submit any sort of questions you have on God, life, Bible, whatever, and then we've kind of compiled them all into different categories and unpacked those questions each week. And so we've looked at questions on death and on world religions and on denominations. A couple weeks ago, we got into some of the, the nuances of theology, uh, which was a, a real party. Uh, and uh, today, uh, we're, we're continuing uh, with questions that y'all submitted about the Bible, some questions that, about certain weird things in the narratives that happen, stuff like that, questions you had about the Bible. And, uh, and so as I was reading through these questions, uh, I did what, what I like to call a, uh, a pastoral punt, uh, where I was like, these are hard questions. I should get someone who knows what he's talking about. Uh, and so, uh, so I invited a, a friend of mine, Jay, uh, to co-teach with me this morning. And uh, just to give you a little bit of a, a background on him, he's going to come up and join me in a little bit. But, uh, but Jay was a, a lawyer in a former life, uh, but is apparently a glutton for punishment. And so while practicing law, went to Southwestern Seminary uh, and got a master's in theology. And uh, that wasn't enough for him. So he went on to uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, where he got a master's in sacred theology. There's a difference. Uh, and, uh, and focused on Old Testament studies. Uh, his thesis there, because I know it's important to you guys, was on uh, the D-stem in Ugaritic, which was normal for us to talk about. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, but uh, that, that clearly was not enough suffering for him at all. He still didn't learn enough about the Bible. So now uh, he's at UT uh, doing PhD studies uh, in Hebrew Bible and the ancient Near East. And so uh, he is uh, going to help us out with the more challenging uh, questions we have this morning. He's what one may call an expert, or in his words, an expert. Uh, so we're, we're excited to have him here. Uh, but before we get to him, I, do, I just want to outline for you all, for you type A folks out there, what uh, our outline's kind of going to look like this morning. Uh, first of all, I'm going to spend some time, and I'm going to talk about uh, the why. Why do we ask questions of the Bible? Why is it okay for us to ask questions of the Bible? What's the deal with that? So we're going to talk about the why real quick. Uh, and then Jay's going to come up. He's going to do the what. He's going to talk about the specific questions that some of y'all asked. Uh, and then after he gets us through those, then I'm going to talk about the hope that we find in the Scriptures. What is it all about? What does it all uh, mean for us? Why do we even bother reading it? And so that's what we're going to see. So real quick, the, the why, the what, and the hope. All right? So let's get going. Uh, why do we ask tough questions of the Bible? Why should we do that? Uh, look with me at the, the first verse in our text for today, verse 13. Uh, St. Peter writes, and he says, uh, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I love this verse. I've developed a special love for it this week in particular. Um, and here's why. As, as I was beginning to prep for this sermon this week, I was praying and thinking through and starting to do some notes and, and that sort of thing. And, and as I was doing it, I, you know, unless you've been living under a rock, this has been a rough week for our country, right? You look at the, the, the deaths of Elton Sterling and Philando Castile, and then we look just up the road here and the deaths of those police officers. And we look at these tragedies and we look at these horrific things that are happening around us and the brokenness in this world. And I remember as I was starting to prep, I was like, we're doing questions on the Bible on Sunday. 
Like, oh, the world is falling apart, but no, no, no. We're going to spend time discussing the nuances of Bible. Like, it just seems kind of silly to do that. And so I was like, maybe we'll just scrap this whole deal and we'll just hug each other for 20 minutes. I don't, I don't know, you know? Um, but then I read this verse. I read this verse, and it helped me see the importance of taking on these Bible questions even at a time like this, perhaps especially at a time like this. Because the author of this text, the Apostle Peter, look at what he says. He says, hey, prepare your mind for action. He says, be sober-minded. And he said, well, why? Why should I prepare my mind for action? Why should I be sober-minded? So that you can set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, so Peter's point here, what he's saying is, think rightly, think clearly, so that you can fully put your hope on the coming of Jesus Christ. And at times like these, we need hope. We need hope in the coming of Jesus Christ. We need hope that tragic deaths like this will no longer be a thing. We need hope that one day all these things that divide us won't exist anymore. We need hope that all the pain that we see and all the darkness in this world will be pushed away for good and that we'll get to live in the life and the light of our good God. We need that hope. And so in the meantime, we do what St. Peter tells us to do. We think clearly, we think rightly in order to chase after that hope. And what we'll see in our text today is that Scripture enables us to do that. That the Bible, God's Word, enables us to think clearly in order to grab on to the hope that we have in the grace of Jesus. So just look with me at verses 14 to 16. It says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. All right, so let's just, let's just trace Peter's argument so far on what we've read. All right, so first of all, he says, hey, think clearly in order to grab on to hope. And we say, okay, well, well, how do I do that? How do I think clearly in order to grab on to hope? Verse 14, he says, don't be conformed to the passions of your ignorance. Okay, so what should I do instead? Verse 15, be holy. Well, how do I know what that means? How do I know what that looks like? Verse 16, since it is written. Look to where it's written on how we're supposed to be holy. In other words, he's saying, don't be a slave to your passions. He's saying, don't, don't just be governed by what you're feeling in a given moment. Don't just be reactionary to the things that happen in your life. He's saying, let what God has written in His Word shape and govern your thinking. Shape the shape of your life. And this is why it's important we ask questions of the Bible. This is why it's important we ask questions of the Bible. Because, because if we actually take this book seriously, if we actually take it seriously, we actually believe it to be the inspired Word of God, if we're actually going to let it shape our lives, man, we've got to dig deep into it. We've got to ask questions of it. We've got to look for clarity in the midst of it. But let me say this too. Uh, I recognize here one of the, the blessings we have at Axelander is that at any given service, we don't just have Christians here, but we have folks who we like to say are, are kicking the tires on Christianity, maybe peeking over the fence at it. And, uh, and so for those of you that, that are here and you're, you'd say, yep, that's me, um, I, I recognize the Bible sometimes offends our modern sensibilities. 
And I'm not just talking about like our ability to comprehend it, but it just depends who we are. Like, I don't know, man, that old book, I'm not sure I trust it. And so, so if that's you, let, let, me just, let me just say this real quick. Um, my uh, junior and senior year of college, I, uh, I befriended a, a middle-aged couple, as 21-year-olds often do. And, um, and, and, and their names were, were, were Paul and Maria. And, and I'd go over to their house like once a week, and we'd have these dinners and, and, and drinks, and we'd listen to like Tom Waits records, and we'd just kind of talk about, about the deep stuff of life. And there's always these amazing conversations because they were from a way different backgrounds. So I'm like this, you know, nerd studying Greek and Hebrew, going on my way to seminary to be a pastor. And, and Maria had, had grown up Catholic, but, but walked away from the faith, but was kind of coming back, trying to figure it out. And then her husband, Paul, uh, would sort of fluctuate between... Uh, agnosticism and atheism depending on the day. So, so we kind of had some, some distinct perspectives there. And so when we discussed the, the big things of life, it was always a, a pretty interesting uh, group of perspectives that were coming together. At any rate, uh, one night after several months of, of getting together, they had been gone for a weekend. And so they came back and, and I went over to their place and I said, hey, where, where'd, you guys, where'd you guys go for the weekend? And, uh, and Paul goes, goes, oh, Gabe, we went to the coolest place ever. And we went to this guy who, who makes wooden carousel horses. My first thought was like, Paul, you and I have very different definitions of what cool places are. Um, you know, I didn't say it, bit my tongue. Uh, and, and he went on, though, and he goes, Gabe, you, you had to see this guy. Like, this guy just, he threw himself into the work. He's like, the incredible amount of craftsmanship this guy has in making these horses. He just goes into all this detail. And, and then, and, and he just tell me all about this guy. And then he gave me, I think, the greatest compliment I've received. And he said, and Gabe, the way this guy threw himself into the work of, of making these horses made me think of, of you when you talk about God. He said, it made me, made me think of, 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 of the way you throw yourself into knowing God and experience him and trying to figure it out. And I was like, wow, you know, really nice. I said, thanks, Paul. You know, that, that means a lot. And I just said, you know, I'm, I'm just really hungry for him right now. Student, I'm just like, I'm, I'm just eating it up. Like, I can't learn enough about him. I'm just reading my Bible every day, reading scripture every day. And I'm just growing. I can't learn enough about him. And Paul said this to me, and I'll never forget it. He said, well, that's, that's great for you, Gabe. He's like, but the Bible's never worked that way for me. He said, I just can't trust that, that some old book is an actual revelation from God. And can I tell you something? I get that. I get that. I understand where that's coming from. I don't agree with it, okay? But, but I understand his perspective. And so if you're with us this morning, let me just say this. If you're with us this morning, you're still maybe kicking the tires on this whole deal. And that's maybe where you're sitting. That's fine. All right, we're glad to have you with us. And we want you to keep coming back and being a part of this. But I do want to encourage you in these next few moments, we're going to talk about some really specific things in the Bible. And I want you to just dismiss it. We can at least recognize the magnitude of this book, its scope of influence, and the impact, the unprecedented impact it's had on our world. And so hopefully these questions will be helpful for you too. All right? And so we, we, we ask questions of the Bible to dig deep because it helps us think clearly and grab hold of the hope of the coming grace of Jesus Christ. And so let's get into that. Let's get on with these questions. Uh, I'm going to invite Jay to come forward at this time, and we're just going to, I'm going to interview him, and he's going to blow us away. No pressure. Yep. Here's this. Thanks, man. Woo! So the, the questions that uh, y'all submitted uh, were these. Where in the Bible does it talk about Jesus descending into hell? Uh, when Cain killed Abel, how many people were approximately on the earth? Why did he need to be marked? Uh, what is God trying to teach me through the ceremonial law? How do I read Leviticus? All right? And so we're going to go through these. I'm going to try and give some of the background each of these so we're all on the same page. And so Jay knows what we're talking about. Well, we already did one service, so I'm not going to pretend like you don't know what we're doing. Um, I got to do that for the first one, though. 
Uh, at any rate, uh, so, so let's get into it. So the first one here, uh, you know, I think this question came to us because each week we say the creed. You may have heard it even when we did the baptisms here. And as part of the Apostles' Creed, uh, we say that, that Jesus descended into hell. And so the question here being like, really? Like, where does it say that in the Bible? What's the deal with that? So, Jay, where, what's going on here? At some point, you're going to have to tell me why an Old, per- Old Testament person is answering this question. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I'm still not sure why I got this question. (laughs) Okay, um, stay with me. This is going to take just a short explanation. Um, In 390 AD, uh, one of the church fathers named Rufinus uh, wrote a commentary on the Apostles' Creed. Um, So he actually went line by line and discussed what each of the lines mean and, and where they came from. And when he came to this particular line, he makes the comments that there are several versions of the creed that are uh, in use during his time. And he says that this phrase is not in the major creeds that are being used. So the ones that are being used by the Roman church, the Western church, it's not found. And it's not found in the Eastern church, uh, the dominant creed that's being used there either. So it's being used in minority creeds. And he go, but he goes on and he does give explanation for it. And he says that what this means is this is just a restatement that Jesus... Uh, went to the place of the dead, what we call in the Old Testament Sheol, sometimes in the New Testament is referred to as Hades. That's not a comment on the type of place, what we call heaven or what we would call hell. It just means he died and he was buried and he went to the place of the dead. Now, Within the New Testament, there is a, a comment about him going to a place that seems like hell and making proclamation. In 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20, it states that after Christ died and was buried, he goes to uh, imprisoned spirits, spirits that have been imprisoned since the time of Noah, and he proclaims victory. Now, in our broad conception of hell, or what the function of hell is, as we normally conceive of it, it's a it's a holding pen. It's a place where God puts those who have rejected him uh, prior to the final judgment, prior to the lake of fire judgment that we find in Revelation. And so if we understand that that's what hell is generally, that spirits and uh, of divine beings, angels, and also spirits of people go there to wait for the final judgment, then when we look at 1 Peter 3, we can say that that's what this looks like. It looks like Jesus went to a place where those who have rejected God are being held until the final judgment. Now, it doesn't make any comment about whether or not there is anybody else there. Um, It doesn't comment as to why these particular spirits got preached at, um, that Jesus went to them. It's not for them to get second repentance, um, because we know clearly that uh, the Bible says that that doesn't happen. So why it's there, I'm not sure, but it certainly indicates that Jesus went to people who are in a hell-like place, a place we would consider to be hell, and proclaimed to them. So when we say the creed, as long as we understand what we're talking about, Jesus was di- died, he was buried, he went to the place of the dead, and he preached to somebody, and that's how we understand it, then I think we're fine. Where we can't go, and I think where the creed eventually was taken wrongly, by medieval Catholic theologians, is that somehow Jesus had to pay an extra penalty in hell. If we start thinking that, we've really crossed into at least gross error and if not heresy. So we, as long as we know what we're talking about, um, then we're fine. And I think we're, 
you know, this is something that we can all affirm. One, that he was buried and he died, he went to the place of the dead, and he preached to imprisoned spirits because the text specifically tells us. Awesome. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate that. So we don't, we don't use the word heresy enough here, and that's why, that's why we brought you in, buddy. <laughs> Keep us on the straight and narrow. We need it. Um, well, so, so let's get into to more of your field, though, of expertise. We'll go back to the Old Testament. And so for those of you uh, maybe not quite as familiar with the, the, the story of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis starts off, you got Adam and Eve uh, doing their thing. They, got, they get two uh, sons, Cain and Abel, uh, and, and Cain ends up killing Abel. And so what happens then is, is God casts Cain out from his family, says, you got to go. And Cain starts freaking out in Genesis chapter 4. And he says, God, you can't do this to me. If you send me away from my family, people are going to kill me. And God says, all right, well, tell you what, if anyone kills you, I'm going to put vengeance on them. And so God puts uh, a mark on Cain so that people know, hey, don't kill this guy or trouble's coming your way. So the question that comes here, though, is like, if I do my math, and I'm no math genius, Jay, all right, but we got Adam and Eve. We got Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. So now we have three people. Who is Cain worried about killing him? Like, how does that work? So can you, can you clarify that for us? Sure. Okay. So um, the biblical authors uh, have purposes in the stories that they give us and the way that they tell those particular stories. And the biblical authors are really concise. You don't get any extra information that they don't feel is necessary to advance their purpose. And so that's one of the reasons why we don't have a specific number of how many people are alive at that time. We know of Adam, we know of Eve, we know of Cain. Um, and we know also that Cain has a wife, because immediately after God curses him, he has sexual intercourse with his wife and con she conceives a, a son. So there is at least a daughter that's out there. There may be other unnamed daughters or unmentioned daughters, but they don't contribute to the story and they don't contribute to the purpose. So the short answer to how many people are alive, we don't know because the author didn't feel like that was necessary for us to know. Now, what's Cain worried about if there's only three or four people and presumably his wife's not the one who's gonna go after him? Um, up to this point, Cain has never seen a natural death. He doesn't know what natural death looks like. He doesn't know how long his parents are gonna live. He doesn't know how long he's gonna live but he does still know that there was a mandate to go forth and be fruitful and multiply. And so presumably he knows there are going to be more people who are going to be born. We know in Genesis 6 that the reason for the flood is that there's violence, okay? So this is not the last killing that probably took place. We know in our hearts as sinful human beings that the first thing that we want to do if somebody wrongs us is to retaliate. That's our natural inclination. And the Bible understands that and uh, speaks about that, and especially when there's a death. The death has to be avenged, and usually that's by killing the person. And so you combine these factors. Cain doesn't know how long his parents are gonna live, how many more children they're gonna have, how many children that those children are gonna have, and the fact that somebody may decide I'm gonna have a go at Cain, and I'm going to right this wrong somewhere down the road. And that's the reason why he cries out to God and he says, I'm afraid that this is going to happen. You're, you basically excluded me from the world population. You put a curse on me. Somebody's probably going to have a go at me at some point. So real quick, if I can summarize. So what you're saying here is basically, you know, we don't know how many people there are when God and Cain are having this conversation, but Cain recognizes, hey, people are living really long right now. Uh, 
babies having babies having babies having babies, and eventually there's going to be a lot of people, and maybe one of my great nephews says, hey, there's Cain, he killed good old Uncle Abel, let's kill him. Right, absolutely. So okay. if each generation only has, has 10 children and those 10 children have 10 children, then by the sixth or seventh generation, you're up over a million people. And we know that Adam lived to see the eighth generation past him. So it's not unreasonable for there to be a large amount of people um, before Cain's natural death and somebody may have a go. So he cries out to God and he says, God, I can't bear this. And, and God, notice there was no repentance, there's no contrition, there's no I did anything wrong, it's just I don't like the punishment. Despite this, God is merciful and gracious, and God says, okay, I hear you, I'm going to put my mark, my seal is on you. There is something done to him that makes it very clear to everybody else, God specifically, Yahweh is protecting him, and if you harm him, Yahweh is going to take that personally, and he's coming after you. And so we see the grace of God in this, giving Cain what he asked for. The mark is there because Cain asked for it, and God's gracious and merciful, um, even to the unrepentant. So God, in his mercy, marks Cain for protection. Correct. Yeah, awesome, awesome. All right, final question, the one you've all been waiting for. Uh, so if, if, uh, if you're like me or, or anyone who's maybe been a Christian for a little bit, uh, you've done this, right? January rolls around and you say, this is the year. This is the year I read straight through the Bible. And you read through Genesis, and it's awesome. And you read through Exodus, and you're like, wow, plague, so cool. And then you get to Leviticus, and it's awful, right? Because there's all these little laws, all these little details, and all of a sudden I'm reading through it, and I say to myself, Jay, why do I need to know how to properly sacrifice a goat? I'm not going to do it anytime soon. Uh, and so, so the question here is like, wh wh what do we as Christians do with that? With, with these Old Testament laws, with all these little Leviticus, all these little nuanced laws, what does that do for us as Christians today? Okay, so the laws are part of a structural narrative in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And here's the, here's the structural narrative real quick. is covenant, failure, renewal of the covenant, and new laws. And that's what's going on in, in the text. So in Exodus, we see the failure of the priests. The priests fail because Aaron sets up the uh, golden calf for the people to worship and leads them into sin. The covenant is broken. There's a renewal of the covenant. And then you get what we call the priestly code, which are lots of laws and stipulations about how we worship God because they failed at worshiping God. They broke rule number one. You don't have graven images, okay? <clears throat> you... The priestly code rolls all the way up to Leviticus 16. Then in Leviticus 17, the people fail on their own, without the priest this time, um, by sacrificing uh, to goat demons outside the camp. Which, Real quick, it's a bad thing? That's a bad thing. Okay. That's a no-no. Won't do it. And so the rest of Leviticus is the holiness code, which um, pertains to the people and how they're supposed to uh, behave and comport themselves. Paul tells us in Galatians, these laws are given because of our sin, or for the sin of the people of Israel. And so when they break the rules, more rules have to be imposed to try to hem them in from continuing to break rules. Okay. Now, what do these specific rules tell us as Christians? Because they're in the Bible, which means they are for Christians as well to know and to read and to uh, understand. They tell us three things at least. These are the things, these are the three things you're going to hear about. One, God cares about how you approach him in worship. 
and he probably cares a whole lot more than you thought he cared about. Within the priestly code, within the instructions on how the priests are supposed to approach in worship, in Leviticus 10, we have Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and they bring what is called strange fire, whatever that means, to the tabernacle. Fire shoots out of the tabernacle and incinerates them, and God tells Aaron, one, you don't get to mourn, two, you've been consecrated, so you don't get to leave the tabernacle to bury them. You're going to have to have people brought in to carry their incinerated bodies outside the camp. The reason for this is God takes worship seriously, and he takes how you approach him seriously. And so we have to be told again and again and again, because we don't get it, approach me in the correct way. Now, if you're like me, there are Sundays where you roll out of bed and you're late, you're dashing to get here, get your kids here, you get in here, you have a cup of coffee, and you know Tanner's telling you, I need you to come sit down. That happens to me too. So I'm you know, not pointing fingers at you that I'm not pointing to myself. Probably not what God has in mind about approaching him in worship. When you look at how they, it's treated in the Old Testament, it's treated with reverence, it's treated with awe, because you're going in front of God Almighty. As Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. Um, that does not mean we go sadly. doesn't mean we go morosely. We live in joy because of the Messiah, but we're still approaching the Creator God, and, and we need to do so. So that's number one. Number two, God cares about everything in your life and everything in my life. That's what the Holiness Code tells us. If God cared about mold on the walls of the houses in the camp, guess what? He cares about each and every detail of your life and my life. There are no little things. Everything is a big thing to God. <clears throat> and we need to live accordingly, and we need to take that seriously. And again, why does that have to be in there so much? Because we have hard hearts, because we're stubborn, because we're arrogant, and we're prideful, and we're sinful, and we're a mess. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, look at this. That's a mess. <laughs> Grief. Didn't do that at 9.30. I know. Harsh. It just came to me. <laughs> um, and that's why he has to tell us again and again and again, so that at some point it gets in here and we realize I'm a mess and I'm sinful and I need to, uh, I need to make sure um, that I'm cognizant of that and try to be holy as he's holy. Third, most importantly, Jesus tells us uh, in Luke 24 uh, that uh, he's in the law, the prophets, and the writings. He excoriates, he just ridicules the teachers of the law uh, in the Gospels because they don't recognize their Messiah from the Old Testament. Jesus is in the Old Testament a lot, and we miss it. The New Testament does not have a complete picture of our Messiah. It has good pictures. Gospels are great, and the other things that are told by Paul and James and, and John in uh, the Revelation are wonderful, but they're not complete. He's in the Old Testament as well. It tells us things about our Messiah that we don't see anywhere else. And so one of the very important reasons for understanding Leviticus and Numbers and, and those parts of Exodus that seem tedious is it gives us a better picture of our Messiah so that we can have a better relationship with him and we can understand better who he is.
awesome. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate that. Um, and thanks for all your answers today. I, I do, uh, we're, that's, that's all we have for him right now. But before he sits down, I just want to let you all know, uh, Jay has uh, graciously agreed, if you're like me, uh, you hear him answer all those questions and, uh, and go through that. And it probably generates maybe some more questions like, I never cared about that before, but now I have a question about it, like that sort of thing. Uh, and so, uh, so if that happens for you, or if you have a question on the D-STEM and Ugaritic, um, wh whatever it is, uh, Jay uh, is, uh, is paid by the hour, so he's going to be standing up here after we're getting our money's worth. And, uh, and so he'll be standing up here after worship, and uh, feel free to swing by and ask him any questions uh, that you'd like, and, and he'd be uh, more than happy to help you. So thanks for, for helping us out, Jay. Uh, so let me just wrap us up here, all right? We've looked at why we ask questions of the Bible. We looked at the what. We looked at these specific questions that y'all had. And so I just want to I just want to wrap us up with the, the hope that we have uh, as we dig in the scriptures. So if y'all would look with me at the last couple verses in our text for today, uh, it says this: Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now understand what Peter's saying in these final three verses here. He's saying, not only does the word of God shape us to think clearly in order to grab on to the hope of the coming grace of Jesus, but what he's saying here is that when the word of God is proclaimed, when the gospel is spoken, it actually has the power to change our lives. It actually has the power to change your life forever. That when the living and abiding truth of Jesus' victory over death and hell, like Jay talked about with us today, when that's proclaimed, that you share in that victory when you grab hold of that truth. And that when God's word is spoken in the waters of baptism like it was today for Keller and Marilyn, that his mark goes on them. That his promise of protection goes on them. That his promise to be with them always goes on them. And the same is true for each of you. That in that moment, he unites himself to you for eternity. And that unlike the, the failed mediators of the Old Testament that Jay shared with us about, we see in God's word that we have a mediator who will never fail us. That we have Jesus Christ who goes before a holy and righteous God and pleads your case and pleads my case. That it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or where you're coming from. That he says, this kid is mine, he's coming with me, she's coming with me. That he brings you into a right relationship with God through his death on the cross. See, the, the, the hope of the Bible is this. The hope of the Bible is, is not to teach you how to live a nice life. is not to help you cope when things are hard. The hope of the Bible is to show you your sin and show you your great and wonderful Savior. The whole point is to point you to Jesus. That's what it's all about. I like to think of it like this, and some of you may have heard me show this before, um, but uh, back in the day, a Soviet cosmonaut went up into space, goes up in space, does his thing, comes back down, has a press conference, and he gets up at the, the press conference, and he says, I've been to the heavens, and I didn't find God up there, right? And this is, of course, during the Cold War, and so it's sort of atheistic communism's little jab at us religious idiots. And, uh, and, uh, and C.S. Lewis, uh, the, the great thinker, the great British thinker, was alive at that time. 
And, uh, and so he actually wrote a response to what this guy said. And he said, what this guy said makes no sense. He said, That'd be, what this guy did would be like if Hamlet were to go to the top of his castle and say, I see no Shakespeare, therefore Shakespeare does not exist. That's nonsense. What's the only way Hamlet is going to know if Shakespeare exists? Is if Shakespeare writes himself into the story. And friends, this is what we have in our God. This is what we have in the person of Jesus Christ. A God who's written himself into our story. Who's written himself into your story. That you might know him. That you might be in communion with him. And so you may, may you find hope in Jesus as he shows himself to you in his word. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. It shows us how to live, shows us who you are, but mostly, Lord, shows us what you've done for us in Jesus. Teach us to look to him. May we rest in his grace. May we rest in his love for us this day. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.